Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and this week we're talking about the trials of Oscar Wilde. In the first five years of the decade of the 1890s, Oscar Wilde was a celebrity artist who dominated the literary and cultural scene of London. In 1895, he had two smash successes playing in the fashionable West End, An Ideal Husband and The Importance of Being Earnest. But after a series of sensational trials that year, Wilde was sent to prison for two years. When the verdict was announced, the young poet W.B. Yeats was to remember, the harlots in the street outside danced upon the pavement. Wilde emerged from prison a broken man and died in poverty and shame in 1900. His downfall was not just a personal scandal and tragedy, but had a significant effect on the social, cultural and sexual life of his society and profoundly altered the status and style of the arts, the public perception of the artist in late Victorian England. The trials of Oscar Wilde were legal events that had repercussions in the understanding of morality, literature, gender, sexuality, class, fashion, and, of course, the law itself. Oscar Wilde, gay, Irish, and an artist, ended up an outcast and pariah after a spectacular downfall, which he precipitated himself. Now, I'm discussing the trials of Oscar Wilde with Dr Jessica Valdez of Hong Kong University, a specialist in the literature of the Victorian age, and Dr Michael Wan, Associate Dean of Law at Hong Kong University. And I'm going to start with you, Michael, with a factual question. In summary, what were the trials of Oscar Wilde and what happened? The trials of Oscar Wilde was a series of three trials. Um, you can almost think of them as kind of three acts in the play. Um, and the whole thing began, the whole series began, um, with the Marquess of Queensbury, um, who was incensed that Wilde uh, was having this kind of you know, flamboyant relationship um, with his son, Boise. Um, and so what the Marquis did was he left a, a card at Wilde's club. Um, and his handwriting was kind of illegible, but basically I think it said, um, you know, to Oscar Wilde posing as a sodomite. Um, and in reaction to this card, Wilde sued him um, for libel. Um, and under the law of libel, you know, if you if you're sued for libel, um, you could you could present a, a justification, uh, a defense um, of truth. So you could basically say, you know, yes, I said all these horrible things about you, but they are true. Okay, so the first trial is instigated by Wilde himself. That's right. Against Queensbury, accusing him of libel, mm. and the result of that trial was uh, the result. Well, the result was was interesting because. Um, Wilde basically withdrawn, withdrew the plea uh, at, the, at, the, at the end. Um, and what happened was that he realised that, that Queensbury had more um, evidence about various um, dealings that Wilde had with young men than okay. Wilde himself had realised. <clears throat> so Wilde then changes his mind, withdraws his suit against Queensbury because he realises Queensbury has the dope on oh, him. He tried to, yeah. And then, so that's the end of the first trial, but then almost immediately Wilde is then arrested. So, yes, yeah, so at the, at the end of the first trial, you know, there was a, a plea of not guilty um, and, and Queensbury was found not guilty of libel. Um, and then part of the evidence that was gathered um, because of the first trial was, was then passed to the director of prosecutions. Um, and that led, that led to the second trial and to the third trial. And in both of those trials, um, Wilde was prosecuted for having committed acts of gross indecency. Gross indecency. Mm. Um, specifically homosexual acts? Uh, yes. 
And this was against the law in the 1890s. That's right. So this was under the Le Boucher Amendment uh, of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885. Good. Okay. So he's now uh, the subject of a criminal trial. How did that end? Uh, Well, with the second trial, um, the jury couldn't actually agree. Um, And so, you know, there was a hung jury and this led to the third trial. And at the end of the third trial, uh, Wilde was convicted um, as was sentenced to two years hard labor. That's when he goes to prison and ends up in famously in Reading Jail. Wilde was something of a literary star Mm -hmm. in the 1890s. Can you give us some sense of the cultural, the literary, the theatrical scene in which he was a star? Yeah, so Wilde was is predominantly known for reacting against the realist uh, movement or uh, the privileging of realist forms in the 19th century, which is particularly strong also in the 1890s with authors like George Gissing who wanted to represent poverty and the decline of society. Um, So the realist novel. Yes, largely the realist novel. Mm -hmm. um, And while it is associated with the aesthetic movement and also the decadent movement, which largely took off in France, uh, but moved into England, uh, particularly in the form of Wilde. And he valorized the art of posing. We mentioned the word posing right earlier, um, or of lying, separating the uh, separating art from the real world. Right, art for art's sake is the famous saying. So you've got an aesthetic of, as it were, realism and sincerity, and he's po- proposing against it an aesthetic of of performance. Yes, exactly, opposing a performance, of a artifice. line of masks, of artifice, okay. right, uh, of the surface and suggesting that is what art is about, right? Art is not about ethics, it's about itself, it's about beauty, it's about posing. Um, and in a sense, he suggests that you can find more truth in posing, in masks, as opposed to seeking something that's deep or that's something, something that's you know, under the surface. Okay, this this is very good because this helps us to understand then that Wilde is not just someone who writes things, but he's also someone who lives in a particular mm-hmm. way. He becomes a kind of representative or iconic figure for a certain l- style and, and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes, definitely. Um, and he was very influenced by writers like Walter Pater, mm-hmm. who believed in, in a sense, make, making experience, you know, art itself. Um, Wilde very much dressed the part. Uh, he was known for being the dandy, being this... But when you say dress the part, what do you mean? Yes, well, a, a sort of overblown, excessive sense of style, um, in a sense very effeminate, right? Green carnations. Yes, green carnations. Sort of theatrical costumes, extravagant gestures. Yes, and in fact, when he did his tour of America in the 1880s, he was expected to play that part. And at some schools, at universities where he gave talks, students showed up expecting him to be dressed that part and themselves imitated that and dressed in their sense of what Wilde would look at like with the green carnations. But he, in turn, uh, actually took on the middle class in earnest kind of uh, normative way of dressing as a means to counteract their expectations of him. The early 90s were the bulk of his work, um, and he wrote a series of essays on thinking about art, also some plays. The Importance of Being Earnest is the famous work of art that he wrote in 1895. And this is being performed. Yes, it's being performed at the time that he um, is undergoing the trial. Um, and it's quite famous today. There's several movie versions of it. Um, and, of course, Picture of Dorian Gray, which is his famous novella, uh, which actually was requested uh, by a journal at the same time that um, Sir Conan Doyle was asked to 
produce a, a novella as mm. well. Um, and Picture of Dorian Gray is really interesting, actually, because it problematizes what we expect of the of Wilde's aesthetics. In a sense, Picture of Dorian Gray on on one side privileges and dramatizes this double life or this this um, in a sense homosexual lifestyle. But on the other end, it also seems to offer a moral critique, which seems at odds with his celebration of aestheticism. Just before we go back to the trial, a little bit briefly about Wilde's own background. He's Irish. This is important, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, I think it's extremely important. And, you know, and he, I think Wilde very much saw himself as a kind of outsider, um, you know, partly because of his own kind of sexual preferences, but also, you know, because of his Irish identity that, you know, he... He was he he was an Irishman in English society, you know, at Oxford in London, um, and in a lot of ways, you know, he tried to kind of out English the English, mm-hmm. right? So he spoke English accent, you know, the, the 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 dress, right, that Jessica was talking about was also part of this kind of performance um, that he was he was putting on, um, and you know, kind of comments on the English are kind of scattered in his in his plays. So in in some respects, very conventional gentlemanly career. He goes to Oxford, he becomes a classical scholar. He's very well connected socially and also culturally in, yes, in but the also, of his time. Yes, I think so. But also, you know, there's a critical distance mm. um, from the establishment, I think, um, because of his, to some extent at least, because of his Irish background. Here is Wilde. He's formed, uh, as you were saying, this relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, Boise, um, which is a rather scandalous one. He's like consorting very openly with with this fellow, um, Lord Alfred's father, the absolutely horrible Marquis of Queensbury, who seems to be, apart from Lord Alfred himself, one of, one of the most revolting characters in in cultural history. He then sends the notorious card, Oscar Wilde posing as sodomite or sodomite. Wilde sues the lawyer who represented Marquis of Queensbury was Carson. That's right. right. Who was a, a friend of Wilde's, actually, um, when they were at university at Trinity College in Dublin. It's another Irishman. Another Irishman, yes. Mm. Um, and I think you know, one of the interesting things about the trial um, is that, you know, I mean, we were talking about the kind of doubleness, mm. um, that, you know, the, the trial itself, you know, has a sense of doubleness to it in the sense that it was, you know, a specific libel trial or, you know, a trial around a specific criminal offence, uh, committing gro- acts of gross indecency. But it was also very much a trial of Wilde's works uh, and of Wilde's aesthetic philosophy. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, you know, dress and, and the idea of posing. Um, and, you know, at various points in the trial, um, Wilde was accused by Carson precisely of posing. You know, so, for example, mm. Carson accused him of, of, of lying about his age, of posing as being a younger man. Um, and Wilde also, um, you know, toned down his dress um, in, in his attire in the, in the trials. And so he was very much aware that um, the trial, part of what the trial was about was his aesthetic philosophy. And yet he doesn't tone down his language. And if, mm-hmm. if you read what he says in, in the witness box, it's very eloquent, of course, very aesthetic. Very eloquent, very aesthetic and very theatrical. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, so to come back to your question, you know, I think one of the main kind of points of attack 
by Carson was to try to link Wilde's writings to his to Wilde's own life, right? So、mm-hmm. the idea was that somebody who was capable of writing something like *The Picture of Dorian Gray*, a book about you know double lives and secrecy、mm-hmm. and everything,、mm-hmm. um, would himself be the kind of person who would lead this kind of double life. The argument that's going on. That's touched upon in the exchanges between Carson and Wilde in the courtroom is an argument that's going on in the wider culture,、mm-hmm. is it not, about <laughs> the morality of art? And a lot of people anxious about these apparently immoral artists wandering around and showing off.、Mm-hmm. So it, it's that bigger argument, is it not? Yeah, and, and Carson's trying to pin Wilde down and to get Wilde to admit or to claim. That his artwork is immoral. That particularly picture of Dorian Gray might mislead or lead young men astray when they read it, because it's about all sorts of criminal and, and、um, apparently decadent activity.、Yes. How does Wilde defend himself? Wilde resists that that connection. Wilde refuses to suggest that there's a moral、uh, element to his artwork. In fact, he says that you know art is not moral. Art is not ethical. It, it's not about that, right? Um, so he resists the move that Carson's trying to make him. It's not、do. about morality. Not at all. It's about beauty. Yes, it's about the only question. Very、mm-hmm. dangerous, <laughs> dangerous line of defense. Yes,、uh, quite a dangerous line of defense. But also, I mean, he, I think he deployed it quite effectively.、Mm. Um, and so, you know, every time there was an attempt to use this kind of literary work. Um, as evidence, you know, Wilde kind of shifted the register from the domain of morality, of reality, of his actual life, to the domain of beauty and aesthetics.、Mm. Um, and so, in a way, it kind of circumvented the move to use his writings as evidence. But Carson then brings the argument round to personal behaviour, and this is when he starts to produce evidence of Wilde's secret. Covert homosexual life in London. That's right, and you know, I think this is something that that Wild and Clark, as lawyer, didn't expect. That you know, they didn't think that. Well, this seems absolutely crazy to me. He must have known. I mean, he was already being blackmailed by some of these young rent boys. How reckless of him to go into court and to expect this stuff not to come out. Some people wonder, you know, who it was. It was being that that was being reckless. Whether it was Wild himself or whether it was somebody else,、um, and you know, Frank Harris, who was a, a friend of Wild's, you know, writes about、um, Wild's motives in, in bringing about the libel trial.、Um, and, and one of the things that he says is that it was actually not Wild, but Boise. He was so upset with his father、um, that he, you know, he wanted he wanted this big scandal. So he's carrying on his. Edible feud、mm-hmm. in in the arena of the court. He wasn't、yeah. in court, was he, Lord Alfred? Well, I mean, he, Wilde tried very, very hard to keep him out、yeah. of, of 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 the courtroom because you know because of the of the publicity, because of the reporting.、Yeah. Um, but you know, Frank Harris writes about how you know he Frank tried to persuade Wilde to drop this. Mm-hmm. Um, and Boise apparently kind of storms into into the room and says, you know, well, you know, the fact that you had asked Wilde to drop this means that, you know, you're no friend of Oscar Wilde,、um, and and that's 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 how the recklessness began. And well, that's it's also characteristic for him,、uh, Boise, right? In in their relationship,、mm-hmm. I mean, my understanding is that at one point when they were staying in a hotel together, Boise 
required that Wilde walk with him through the lobby and make a public show of them being together. He also spent Wilde's money quite excessively before before this trial happened. So it's really in character and in, in line with their relationship. See, right. the, this is it's really interesting if we're thinking now about the the gay culture in in London in the 1890s. In Paris, it's okay. You can get away with anything, <laughs> right? But in London, it, it, it seems to be reverting to this question of double life. It was something that people knew about as long as you didn't make too much of a display of it. Is that right? Yeah, I think the important thing was not to make a big display about mm. it. Um, also, there had been a series of scandals even before Wilde's trial. And mm. the, the, one of the famous ones is the Cleveland Street scandal from 1889, mm. when a bunch of telegraph boys uh, were found to be essentially prostituting themselves to powerful men um, right. in London and, and throughout, particularly those in government. Um, so in some ways, this is... This is quite similar, or perhaps you can see it as a part of a series of similar scandals. And, and one thing maybe we should emphasize, too, is that Wilde's, Wilde is, in a sense, uh, found culpable, or the, the, the evidence that is held against him are the working-class boys, right, who are working as prostitutes, right? So they are those, they are the, the evidence that eventually works against him. And this is the kind of squalid evidence that's being produced by the prosecution, Wilde's association with pretty disreputable mm. people, including rent boys. Um, there's correspondence, there's documentary evidence. Um, f- what, what was the crime involved here? Well, I mean, it's it's the crime of committing acts of gross indecency. Gr- so, gross indecency. So you know, okay. he was having you know committed these these crimes with these boys, um, and, and I think you know the 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 treatment of the evidence from these young men um, in the second trial and the third trials. I mean, the difference between the way the evidence was treated uh, is interesting, and I think in the second trial, you know, the judge towards the end of the trial said, well, these young men are basically all blackmailers, mm. right? That, you know, they they were in the business of sleeping with these kind of upper-class gentlemen, aristocrats, you know, famous people, and then trying to get money out of them. Yeah. Um, and so the judge said, well, you know, you have to take their evidence with a huge grain of salt that they can't be trusted. Um, but the judge in the third trial um, you know, looked at the situation and said, well, you know, the blackmailer wouldn't be there if the acts that led to the blackmail didn't <laughs> exist in the first place. So there was a very different treatment of, uh, of, of their testimony. In the second criminal trial, a, a phrase that is debated is the love that dare not speak its name. The love that dare not speak its name. I understand this is actually a quotation from Lord Alfred, That's from right. a, a sonnet of his. Jessica, tell us about the love that dare not speak its name. Actually, I don't really know. <laughs> Maybe you <Okay>. should ask him. <laughs> right, we'll don't include that. <laughs> in, in, the, in the criminal t- trial, there's a discussion of this phrase, the love that dare not speak its name, which is a quotation from one of Lord Alfred's poems, I think. Um, and somebody says to her, well, what is the love that dare not speak its name? Well, we probably think we know. Um, do, do you recall how Wilde responds to that? Um, from what I recall, he responds with this wonderfully kind of eloquent soliloquy, 
uh, about kind of same-sex love, and he says it's something that's noble. Um, it's something that's intellectual. It's something that's pure. So I think, you know, he was trying, and this, you know, he's tr- drawing on the Greek tradition um, and and the classics, <clears throat> and and arguing against the view that you know the, the, the same sex love is something that's dirty, that's impure, that should be kind of you know kept in the closet. Mm, right. Um, and of course, he he is a classicist. He's been done classics at Oxford. Yeah. So so have most. <laughs> Most of the other people in the governing class in London at that time. So he's thinking of Plato and the fact that in Plato we read about relationships between older men and younger men. And, right. and it's part of an, a, a very respectable intellectual aesthetic tradition. But... But, I mean, I, I think, you know, that tradition kind of raises problems about class um, mm. and, 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 and reading, I think, that, you know, he's drawing on this tradition, um, which, you know, people who are educated, people who are of the kind of upper class would understand. But, you know, your kind of normal common person um, at the time, you know, wouldn't. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things that worked against Wilde in the trials, I think, um, is at the end of the day, you know, the question of how you read his works um, boils down to a kind of common sense reading. You know, what would the common normal person, how would that person interpret the works? Um, And so this kind of elitist, this argument about elitist reading, Mm. you know, art for art's sake, aestheticism, that argument ultimately didn't fly at the very end. Everything comes into play in this trial. Aesthetics, law, class... Morality, it's all there. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so, but in in the end, okay, the evidence piles up and piles up. Wilde has clearly, I mean, he was guilty, wasn't he, under the law? At the uh, at the end of the third trial, yes, he was found guilty. I mean, not just found guilty, but he was guilty. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the end, and he's off. He goes to prison for mm-hmm. two, two years. years, where he has a really terrible time. Yeah, and um, he actually managed to write. A little bit about his imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say something about that? Yeah. Well, he um, he wrote a piece called De Profundis, um, in which he reflected on his situation in jail, right, mm. and his relationship with Boise, um, and he, in in some 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 critics, in some ways, uh, consider that to be his greatest work in a way mm. because it's in a sense the most earnest. I mean, it depends on your sense of wild right whether that that gives value to it but um so this is a a sort of autobiographical essay in which he's defending himself or or just explaining what's happened to him yeah he's he's explaining what's happened to him in a sense he's not defending himself so much as thinking through the effects of jail um and his suffering right it's Mm. very much of an autobiography of suffering and pain um and its effects on his self um, and his self-development. And he suggests at one point in the work that he once thought that joy, pleasure in particular, was all that one should seek in life, right? That that's the highest, uh, that's the highest value, mm-hmm. um, particularly in this idea of experience being important. But he suggests in this, this last work, uh, because it comes out after his, his death, but he suggests, suggests in this work that suffering really has been the most intense and useful experience in so his it's life. tragic. Well, it's certainly, <laughs> I mean, it is a tragic story. He comes mm-hmm. out of jail, he's pretty much finished, his health is broken down, he's more or less bankrupt. It's a very sad last few years before his death. 
a very significant change has happened. Is this is this not right? To the way that the arts are regarded and how artists are expected to behave. Mm-hmm. Well, I think first of all, there's a new sense of a threat in terms of effeminacy or uh, certain kinds of behavior, right? Whereas before, you might not, they they didn't associate, the Victorians didn't associate effeminate or flamboyant behavior with same-sex relations. After a while, they do. And in fact, often wild is used as a term to describe that sort of behavior. Uh, So wild becomes a verb, in a sense, at that point. In a way there needs to be more control or or there's a sense of more restriction in terms of how the artist should or can behave. Um, But I would also add that there's been a resurgence in Wilde since the 1970s. He's become particularly popular because he's now often seen as a hero in a sense for um, the LGBT community Mm. um, and also as a early... Um, preview or early sign of what's now viewed as postmodernism, right? The the questioning of the real, of the natural, and of the absoluteness of language. What about in terms of public morality? Because it's brought all these things to the surface, hasn't it? Yeah, I think the trials brought all these things to the surface. And, you know, it did, I think, you know, it led to a kind of chilling effect uh, on, on gay culture at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there were a lot of gay people who left London um, and took the ferry. People rushing to the, to the Channel Ferry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it created this sense of fear, of anxiety, of unease. Um, and I think one indication of how kind of profound the influence is, is uh, if we fast forward to 1928 mm-hmm. um, to the Well of Loneliness trial, you know, this was a trial around uh, the first popular novel about lesbianism. Um, that that was published by Radcliffe Hall. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Wilde's shadow is very much there. And, you know, and I think one of the comments um, in the the newspaper editorials was, you know, the literature needs to keep its house in order, you Mm -hmm. know, after the Oscar Wilde trial. So something like this shouldn't happen again in in 1928. Um, And so, you know, I I think Wilde very much casts a shadow. So at, at least in public... Uh, all of these things return to the underground. Literary and artistic figures are expected to be much more respectable, civic-minded, responsible, Mm -hmm. patriotic, um, law-abiding, and all of these things. And this this had an effect that lasted right through to the time of the First World War, it seems to me. Jessica, you started talking about Wilde's reputation now mm-hmm. and in some sense he's come back as a as a hero of um, modern attitudes towards sexuality for mm-hmm. example and you said also of a modern or postmodern aesthetic yes um, is he now regarded as I mean at, at, even at the time when he was his greatest success there was a sense of triviality about well he was just he was a very funny comic writer and so on how how is he regarded now in terms of his stature as an artist? I think among literary critics um, and scholars, he's taken quite seriously, and I don't, I don't mean earnestly in that sense, but, <laughs> but rather uh, his affectations, his poses, mm. his, his performances are seen as a 
playfulness, a playful challenging of the Victorian status quo, a challenging of the gender norms of that period. In a sense, I think that some critics and some scholars almost see him as more unconventional than he really was. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly, certainly, his playfulness is seen as more serious than just triviality. Jessica Valdez, Marco, and thank you both very much indeed, and thank you for listening. <laughs>